This episode is brought to you by The Skeptical Buddha, The Tao of Science. My book, which is a thoughtful discourse on Eastern philosophy and how it helped birth ideas required for science and skepticism and the way it fell behind in the face of new evidence. This book discusses the long history of both philosophies as well as the tenets and variations within the varying sects along with psychology and our own natural biases. It discusses how to counter our natural biases using science and the underlying concepts of meditation and mindfulness, a more complex understanding of how science operates than most of the public understands, and why it is the best tool we have to discover truth and reality, as well as philosophical ideas we might embrace as technology progresses. The material is packaged in a way that the average person can understand with rich illustrations to draw the reader in and feel at peace. Welcome to After School Democracy, the podcast that attempts to fill in the gaps you almost certainly missed in school about politics, economics, and history. I recently shared an image of an idealized high-speed rail line map for the U.S. I literally had someone respond that America has more important things to worry about than pie-in-the-sky high-speed rail, problems like fighting climate change. Uh, what do you think high-speed rail lines are pushed for in the first place? Jets have one of the biggest climate impacts, while high-speed rail can be run on 100% renewables. However, I've been binging a lot of different infrastructure videos on YouTube, and I don't think people really have made the connection that the fight for climate change really is an infrastructure problem. People want to fix it all with individual electric cars and still live the same individualized, suburbanized lifestyle we've always been used to. This is not only unfeasible from an environmental standpoint, it's also unsustainable financially or from a housing affordability standpoint. Let's start small and zoom out. First off, living space. There are two really essential environmentally friendly methods of living, rural and urban. Rural living is necessary to be highly spaced out because we need the food they grow. There are ways we can shrink the land space needed over time using smart greenhouses for vegetables and cutting back on meat consumption as we currently are eating twice the amount of meat we did 50 years ago and it's impacting our health. But for now, it's still an essential method of living. Individual electric vehicles will be a big improvement to reducing their carbon footprint, especially since electric trucks are coming into their own. The other is, of course, the city or the town. Ideally, cities and even small towns are made up of mixed-use buildings close together. This is essential for two reasons. One, so that everything you want and need is really close by so you can walk, bike, or take public transit really easily. And two, so that there will be a high enough tax base to fund good infrastructure. Buildings are mixed use, so if a shop goes out of business or a company no longer needs office space, that area can be easily converted into living space or vice versa. It's why you are much more likely to see an empty building away from the city center than downtown unless the zoning laws are all screwed up, which sadly they often are. And why these zoning laws are all screwed up really comes down to racism via classism. Yep, always racism. For the most part of human history, cities were designed to be walkable. Cities would always expand with things close together. When rail car and trolley were invented, they were affordable because people were close enough together and they had enough taxes coming in per square foot. However, as the car became more affordable and the U.S. auto industry wanted to create more drivers, more and more, especially white families, began living in this no-man's land between rural and urban called the suburbs. To begin with, the suburbs started out as mostly fine, as small towns got absorbed into a greater metro. Nothing wrong with that. 
However, wealthy people had always lived on large estates in the suburbs as a way to escape city life, but also be close enough to the city to benefit. And just like grassy lawns, the new rising middle class wanted that too. Some early suburbs were designed to be walkable, if not segregated, but at a certain point, a small group of really racist people in one city realized they could legally keep their areas segregated in spite of court and legal changes if they just got the city to change zoning laws in suburbs so that the area was single-family zoning only and each lot required a minimum amount of land much larger than was needed and to be walkable, making the costs just out of reach for most black folks, who of course had to pay higher interest rates on home loans, assuming they got approved in the first place. Rural folk also began moving into the suburbs, because they were used to that much land, and this was actually downgrading for many. To make matters worse, with less taxpayers per square foot, they brought in less tax revenue, and the city taxes often ended up subsidizing those areas, meaning they were stealing from people they were discriminating against in the most boring ways. If a suburb didn't have city taxes to leech off of, they would often get pretty cheap loans to build it, banking on the idea that these suburbs would just gain more value over time and pay for the taxes that way. Since urban areas became associated with poor and minorities, funds were directed away from many areas letting them go into disrepair or pack people together so tightly that there was zero green space and trees required for mental health and to reduce urban heating, which makes many of the poorest people have to spend more on AC or go without during a heat wave which can kill them, which makes basic living even more expensive. Extreme heat makes learning and IQ lower, and many schools in these areas can't afford AC in the classrooms, giving poorer grades and lower opportunities. Police also record a spike in violent crimes when the temperature goes up, because people literally get dumber and can't settle disputes through rational communication as well. This model took off all over the U.S., with added fuel by the auto and oil industry, who thought it was great that this made everyone in these areas own a car just to go buy groceries or do literally anything. Because of this, people began lobbying to make more parking spots, and now it's required by law for all buildings to have a maximum amount of parking spaces, aka non-drivers subsidizing drivers. There are now eight times the number of parking spots in the U.S.'s cars, and we literally paved paradise to put up a parking lot. Also, while we were attacking the Soviet planned economy model, cars and oil got paved roads to follow the Soviet planned economy model verbatim, while it took a lot more work to put in more rail lines, and we have the worst passenger rail system in the developed world. Now it's illegal in most of the U.S. to have suburbs with mixed-use buildings or zoning, walkable areas, spare rooms, or houses in your minimum plot to rent out or sell off part of your lot to build more housing on. Anytime people try and change this, NIMBYs, or not-in-my-backyarders, freak out and claim it will change the character of their community, like these energy and tax-sucking, barren, boring grasslands have much in the way of character at all. Add to all this that this area used to be farmland for fresh fruits and vegetables that were shipped in to feed the city via train that were really energy efficient, and you can see why the modern North American suburb is just straight-up awful and not conducive to a sustainable planet. As these suburbs age, many of them have not gotten more valuable and therefore are unable to maintain their infrastructure, and ones that aren't sucking off the city taxes, which are now more expensive with aging infrastructure, 
are often just going bankrupt, especially in the Midwest and the South. Some even replace their paved roads with gravel ones because they can't afford to maintain blacktop. It's essentially a Ponzi scheme that three generations later has to pay for. In a city, if a building stops being used as one thing, it shifts purposes. In the suburbs, if a big box store or shopping mall with a massive parking lot goes out of business, it just sits there, empty and useless as an ugly blight, taking up space and making things further to drive to. There are some really easy ways to fix this problem and fix the housing problem. Basically, end zoning aside from industrial and agricultural zoning. Allow people to build extra units or rent rooms out on their property. They can already do this with Airbnb as a workaround, but allowing people to increase the number of people living in their area would increase taxes and lower the housing shortage and cost of housing. Allow people to segment houses up into duplexes or triplexes instead of single family if there are no fire or safety hazards. Allow them to sell off part of their property and don't require a minimum amount of land. It would also allow apartments to be built in these areas especially, or in place of old giant box stores, which are now banned from single-family zoning. This would drastically cut homelessness, which costs roughly $25,000 of taxpayer money a year to keep each homeless person homeless instead of just giving them a permanent home, which would cost the taxpayers half as much and increase their chance of getting a job, assuming they aren't still working over 40 hours a week like 80% of homeless people. There is no reason why commercial and residential should ever be segregated by distance. No reason other than a classist ideal. In Europe, most suburbs have a store or shop on the corner every few blocks you can easily walk to with actual sidewalks. In the U.S., we have strodes or streets that are essentially roads that no one feels safe walking down. This has drastically reduced the walkability and independence of children as the distance they can safely walk by themselves just keeps shrinking. If you feel like this generation is a bunch of snowflakes, you can blame the suburbs and strodes because they are 100% reliant on their parents to do literally anything safely until they can afford a car, assuming they can. All of the most influential people who have time and energy to run or attend local government meetings are wealthier and live in the suburbs, so they only care about car-centric issues. They are also, for the most part, over 50 and most resistant to change of any kind, even though, after it's done, most people are either neutral or prefer a desuburbanized change. This ensures that subways, light rail, and biking infrastructure are viewed as being for poor people and therefore get little to no funding since they require such a high upfront cost. And while the cities bring in the most state revenue, if they have a higher rural population in that state, Getting some of that money back to fix the rail system is impossible because why can't you just drive a car like a normal functioning adult? All the while, cities are subsidizing their rural roads. Since no one but poor people use sidewalks, they wouldn't build them to reduce the undesirables in that area. Bikes became associated with kids, and even now it's not safe for kids to take bikes in most areas. It's been estimated that if every fourth street were shut down in most cities and given to people, bikes, mass transit, and emergency vehicles only, it would reduce car dependency drastically, making traffic not even noticeable over time, if not drop, as bikes use a fraction of the space the cars do, while opening up commerce and neighborhood cohesion in these areas and foot traffic increases local buying and therefore taxes. But suggesting something even remotely to this would be political suicide by most mayors. Buses became associated with inconvenience in the poor, so ridership dropped, making most trips by bus or light rail two to three times longer than by car, even though increased bus use would drop congestion on the roads. 
Many Midwestern cities used to have some of the best and most efficient trolley systems, but to boost car ownership, GE and Ford bought up all the trolley lines and ripped them up and replaced them with buses. Just like electric high-speed rail and electric passenger rail, trolleys are the most efficient method of transportation. Basically, instead of a big bulky battery made using scarce heavy metals using child and slave labor and poor nation, which also burns for hours if it catches on fire, there is just a grid of wires on the routes the trolley can link to. There are even converters for electric buses you can attach to the roof. Once the infrastructure is in place, it just requires upkeep, and there are some cities that still have this electric grid infrastructure sitting around that just needs repair to reinstate. There is even a hybrid model for buses that can use a much smaller battery to leave the grid and finish off the extra mile on the battery as opposed to battery alone, which often aren't built for carrying such a heavy battery and ends up cracking the frame in just a few years. If the goal is to get people off the road, diesel buses are cheaper and more environmentally friendly than the top-of-the-line Teslas they would take off the road, and over time swapping them out for electric line infrastructure buses or trolleys could shrink the carbon footprint even more. Instead, to greenwash, many cities just buy these expensive battery buses, which instead they could buy twice as many diesels, boosting routes and ridership. And lastly, we get to high-speed rail. Thanks to Soviet-style planned economy around roads, where they just measure road use and build more as use increases, business-subsidized parking and quick airlines, it just made logical sense time-wise to go by car or fly. If you've ever experienced Amtrak, it's only slightly better than taking Greyhound in terms of time. This is because most often Amtrak doesn't own its own track. It rents from the freight tracks, meaning that freight trains get priority over passenger. So there can be hour-long delays on Amtrak rail if the scheduling is even slightly off, or there is a mechanical issue because freight rail always gets right-of-way over passenger. Because of this, Unless you have the time to leisurely enjoy your trip with lots of legroom and even a sleeping lounge, time-wise it's a terrible idea when you have such good subsidized but polluting air and road to take. All while proponents claim free market when they are literally subsidized socialism style and in terms of roads, communist style, so there is no free market as trains don't get the same subsidies at all. Solarpunk, if you aren't familiar, is a literary, artistic, and in many ways philosophical utopian movement which is the counter to the dystopian cyberpunk and apocalyptic punk movements. As YouTuber Andrewism put it, in an age of doom, hope is an act of rebellion, but without a model of what could be, all we can see is what we have. Solarpunk focuses on slowing down, less work, but also DIY, food forest agriculture, and community. Kids learning how to work on robotics and gardening at the same time. Reduced materialism, and powered by wind and solar. Many have taken the green future as brutalist architecture covered in plants on the outside, with everyone owning an electric car and self-sustaining homes with newer high-tech batteries. In all reality, much of it is switching back to an old-school model of living that is much less classist that was based on racism. Real solar punk does have some cool new tech, like a smart grid and solar panels, but it also just requires re-embracing old-school city planning, killing the single-family-only zoned suburbs, and restoring old but even more improved technology like trolley trains and buses that will reduce the lithium and cobalt needed to make portable batteries, and we can build larger and much more efficient energy storage instead. I have linked channels in the below bar to look into more detail. Not Just Bikes discusses the seriously different bike infrastructure between the Netherlands, where everyone bikes and it's the fastest way to get anywhere, and the U.S. suburbs. Strong Towns and City Beautiful are channels that basically break down everything terrible about single-family-only suburbs. 
Adam Something loves breaking down all the insane billionaire hype or disruptive technology to fix problems we already have easy solutions to that we don't use, especially Elon Musk, and Alan Fisher discusses how the rail system is and could be different, and they all bleed over into each other's topics as they're all related, of course. Solarpunk isn't more of the individualist materialist same, just now all self-sufficient and off-grid. If you want that, go rural and become a farmer, who at this point, for many reasons, won't make enough to be materialistic either, as farm subsidies go to giant corporate farms too, where Wall Street execs are considered farmers. Solarpunk requires collective working together, and collective ownership of things like transportation, to find a better solution, less owning one of everything, more shared public good and resources, less classism, and more access to housing. New green tech is great, and a huge part of it, but around half of it really will require us to change how we travel collectively instead of individually, and if it's good, it reduces the stress of the riders and increases walking, which increases health and reduces hospital bills and just makes everything cheaper for everyone. However, getting to this will require not just voting, but actually doing things like attending community, town, or city meetings that cover zoning and infrastructure. Infrastructure is climate mitigation, and if all they have at these meetings are old suburban dwellers, they won't hear alternative points of view of how they're making everyone miserable, robbing from city funds, and killing the planet with their fear of change. But you have to go and get involved. It's the closest to direct democracy and direct action you can get, but since it takes time and effort, most of us never go to these, myself included. In fact, I made this video as a way to try and convince myself that I need to get involved and start attending these kinds of meetings, and that it's actually worth my time and real results that will make getting over my antisocial mindset worthwhile. If you're worried about the planet, this is your best solution. If you're left-leaning, infrastructure is a form of wealth redistribution, though mostly currently redistributed to the more well-off. If you're a conservative, you should be horrified at just how irresponsible and unsustainable the current infrastructure system is and just how communist our roads are, ensuring no free market. This is how you can make real change and get involved, and make your area less expensive, more equitable, more enjoyable, and environmentally sustainable. But that requires actually becoming directly engaged with local politics. Protests seem to be the only tool people understand for engaging and fixing things. This has an even more powerful impact. Good sustainable housing infrastructure and transit is solar punk, is social justice, and is financially responsible and increased choice. The only people who should be against this by ideology are people trying to claim it reduces choice and freedom, and those are people who have tons of money and want to continue getting corporate subsidies and making lots of sales, forcing us to own one of everything and jacking up real estate through speculation, when there's no way the rent should ever be this danged high. It's all linked and all connected to greed, but unless we see how it's connected, it feels hopeless and we feel hopeless to do anything, which is exactly what they want as they keep raking in your tax money and locking you into buying one of everything just to get by, reducing any actual choice and freedom. Hi everyone, as you've noticed if you're watching this, I recently paid for a month's subscription to Storyblocks for $65 a month. I've been told my message is great, but my production quality is subpar, so I'm seeing if this helps. I don't know how well this will go, but it's not money I really have long term, and the videos take five times as long to make, especially with my dinosaur slow computer. So if you like this format better, go to Patreon and encourage me to do more by becoming a patron. If it seems to be something people like, I'll buy a years long subscription, which costs about half as much per month. I'll also be playing around and seeing what the best format is, perhaps doing a still image for every three to four video clips. I'll figure it out.
Vote with pledges if you like this format. Thanks. So as always, thank you all for watching this as a video or listening to this as a podcast, which I'm sure was completely uncontroversial to anyone, especially to the YouTube monetization team. So if you found this useful, please donate to my Patreon. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have almost 700 videos on my channel that I've made over the past 11 years on religion, science, psychology, and politics. Please go check them out, and if your site has the option, like, rate, review, and comment. A special thanks goes out to Kendall Copperberg, Mylon Mia, Ogrel, Elias Garcia Guevara, and Joe Taylor for their $10 or more Wapawet level donations. I'm always humbled by the fact that they find my work worth funding and worth driving me forward. Thank you all. Please consider donating to my work if you can, and thank you all for listening.